That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm, mm, mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. The Incomparable, number 608, April 2022. Hello and welcome to The Incomparable, a back alley podcast full of jackals, headhunters, and thugs. Today we will be talking about the Wachowskis' amazing 2008 adaptation of Speed Racer. I am Nathan Alderman. Um, I'll be taking the wheel for this podcast, uh, but I can't do it alone. So um, I'd like to introduce first my intrepid mechanic, Shelly Brisbane. How you doing, Shelly? Pancake and St. Liebchen. Hello. <laughs> And high overhead in the copter, it's Lisa Schmeiser. How's it looking, Lisa? Cool beans. I'm great. (laughs) So if you haven't seen the 2008 adaptation of an ancient Japanese cartoon dubiously translated into English sometime in the 1960s or 70s, I don't know. I am not familiar with the source material. Um, You're missing out because... For all its flaws, and this movie does have flaws, there are many actors in this movie who don't seem to know that they are in a movie. It is an incredible work of cinema that's also sort of like if you sat down to a bowl of sugary cereal on Saturday morning watching cartoons and discovered that that bowl of sugary cereal had been laced with LSD. (laughs) So I'm really looking forward to talking about one of my very favorite movies, um... And I'd like to start by asking Lisa and Shelley, let's tell us more about the first time you thought you saw this movie and how it hit you. Uh, because for me, sitting in the theater in 2008, knowing that it was just a movie where cars apparently do kung fu from the creators of The Matrix, uh, it was one of those, you know, we were outside of Barstow when the acid kicked in <laughs> moments for me. And I'd love to know what you guys thought. Shelly, well, do you want to go first? Or sure, I? Okay. I, I'll, I'll go. Uh, I first saw it over the weekend, and I—I be—I'll be honest, it was not on my radar, um, but I was happy to see it at Nathan's suggestion. And so I'm—I'm I'm brand new to all this. I didn't know the source material. I think I might have been familiar with the theme, uh, but not the actual cartoons because I grew up in a town with, it's surprising because it's a big city today, but I grew up in a town with fewer than three TV channels. So it means we didn't get everything. And so there are these weird gaps in my, uh, in my childhood education and Speed Racer is one of them, but I've more than made up for it now. <laughs> so when I was growing up, my mom had a pretty strict rule that we were allowed a half hour of television a day. And if you wanted more, you had to read for the equivalent time first. And given the choice between watching Speed Racer or Star Blazers, 
I'm team space battleship Yamato all the way, but I did watch a little bit of Speed Racer growing up, and I remember being mostly unimpressed because um, it's a dude racing around a track with other dudes, and there's a girl who exists basically to batterize at Speed Racer, and I noped out of that pretty early. But huge fan of the Wachowskis, and while we didn't go see it in the theater, when it came on cable, I remember DVRing it. And sitting down with my husband to watch Phil, 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 Phil Michaels. Some of you may know him from the Magnum PI podcast. And um, we just sort of sat there on the couch. It was the equivalent of that old commercial they used to have for MTV where it's the person in the, in the armchair and their hair is being blown back while they watch the TV. <laughs> <laughs> and when it was done... We, we were like, okay, this is an amazing looking movie. It's got an intense and sweet, generous visual vocabulary that, you know, you practically want to lick the color palette because it's just so luscious and juicy and brilliant. And it left me absolutely cold because there there's a big flaw at the heart of this movie that they can't action their way out of and they can't write their way around. It's a really interesting failure. And so when we saw it again this past weekend, we did a family movie night where we introduced my daughter to the movie, (laughs) my 11-year-old. And as the credits began, the first thing she says is, why isn't there a warning that there are flashing lights and it could cause seizures? (laughs) That is an excellent point. Yes, this movie is basically one giant seizure warning. It is, but... She was also sucked in by the, um, again, by the aesthetic of the movie, because the Wachowski siblings really managed to um, nail everything from, like, the color story in every single scene is just flawless and on point. And um, they got some good performances out of some of the actors, and we can get to that in a little bit. Some of them. Yes, some (laughs) of the actors, and we'll get to that in a little bit. And... They also managed to bring a really cartoony aesthetic, and in some scenes, it really works. But again, there's like a big glaring flaw at the heart of the movie. <laughs> and um, when when it was over, and I'm I'm, I'm not going to spoil it until we start talking more about you know <laughs> the pros and cons of the movie. Um, I looked at my I looked at Trix, and I'm like, so what did you think? Um, <laughs> and she was like, okay, but why wasn't the movie about insert glaring flaw at the heart of the movie here and i was like you know you're right i would have rather seen that movie but what did you think of this one she's like it's beautiful and my head is spinning and i hate speed racer (laughs) like the character and i was like okay that's that's fine (laughs) well it doesn't help that speed racer is played by emile hirsch who in hindsight has turned out to be a person who has done pretty awful things to other human beings Um, so before we get into a whole separate the art from the artist type of thing. I think we can actually bag a lot on Emile Hirsch just based on the strength of his performance or non-performance here. Because to me, the big flaw in this movie is that they made Racer X's story so much more interesting. Um, And honestly, why do I care about Speed Racer's coming of age when his older brother, like, is playing the long game with law enforcement and taking down a racing cartel and changing his face and his identity? Like, that's a much more interesting story. Um, So so why do I care about Speed Racer? But the second problem with the movie is that Emile Hirsch is supposed to be the um, character. Like, he's, he's, he's playing the character that all the action revolves around, and he's terrible. Like, I don't know if he just didn't get the role or if he's just like that limited or or what the story is. But you can feel the energy draining out of 
the scene, the minute he's in it, like the minute he opens his mouth, all of the emotional momentum other other actors have worked so hard to build up goes away. And the premise that this kid is so preternaturally, fantastically talented that he's quote unquote the one in racing, like everyone looks like an idiot for saying that because it's like looking at a stick of wood with a pompadour getting behind the wheel of a car. So... <laughs> So I would I would agree with you partly. I agree. Mm-hmm. There are long stretches of this movie where Hirsch seems vaguely bemused and not at all connected with the material in the way that some other really incredible performances in this movie are. Uh, there are three tiers of perf- well, there are four tiers of performances in this movie. Mm-hmm. There are people who transcend the movie. Mm-hmm. There are people who know exactly what movie they're in and absolutely nail it. There are people, like I said, who are not don't seem to be sure that they are in a movie. And then there's Emil Hirsch, who is just, (laughs) there are moments when I feel like he captures the emotional heart of the film really well. And then there are a lot of moments where I completely agree with you. He's like, this is dumb. I'm, I'm just going to do the bare minimum. I mean, I like the, kid who played him as a young boy better than I yes, liked him. Yes, me too. Mm-hmm. I thought he was... And I, it's funny because when I started watching the movie, seeing that kid doodling and trying to think about... Thinking about racing while he's trying to be in class, it made me very warm-hearted toward the movie going forward. I was like, oh, I want to see what happens to this kid. This is going to be great. And isn't the aesthetic brilliant where like, you see the racing and it's with these really childish aesthetics and you're still really pulled in by the excitement and his wholehearted, genuine focus and joy. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And and you absolutely sympathize. I mean, this kid who's, you know, doing terribly in school and there's 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 another movie in which you would just like be in sympathy with his parents or his teacher or whatever, because nobody can get this kid to focus on his schoolwork. But I'm absolutely all about that kid living his dream from the moment I see him. It's Mm -hmm. great. Yeah. Okay. So we might as well start the spoiler horn uh, right now. So let's let's uh, fire up our Bernoulli conversionators and set <laughs> off the spoiler horn. All right. Um, Lisa, you mentioned that that there is another more interesting movie within this movie, and I agree. Racer X is awesome, and I, I thought Matthew Fox was a little stiff when I saw this movie the first time, mm-hmm. but when I went back and rewatched it, he is perfect he is playing exactly what the character needs to be and he's playing another layer of emotion under that but Mm -hmm. i would argue that the problem is with emil hirsch then because this is a really personal story for the wachowskis which is a really interesting thing to say um for a movie that is this is the plot ladies and gentlemen there's a guy he likes to drive real real fast it's the only thing he's good at it's all his family ever cares about he has to drive real, real fast. A bunch of people don't want him to drive real fast. Also, his brother is a leather-clad badass who fights international supercrime with his car. That's the plot of the movie. It is summed up in a, a literal giant placard at the end on the final shot of the film, Cheaters Never Prosper. Um, <laughs> that's the whole film, folks. But what a delivery mechanism for, th- for that plot. But I would argue that this is this is a really personal story for the Wachowskis for a bunch of reasons. Like all the Wachowskis films, it is the story of an individual struggling to realize their potential and become their most complete and truest self against a cynical, all-powerful system of control that is trying to stop them. You can see that from Bound to The Matrix, Jupiter Ascending, even Cloud Atlas. This this theme echoes again and again, and given that the Wachowskis are trans and that this film was made before they came out, that is a really interesting reading. 
it's also a really poignant story about a, a kid who has something inside them that makes them different. And instead of ostracizing them or trying to crush that, their family sees that, loves them for it, nurtures and appreciates it. Uh, and it's, I mean, it's, it's about a bunch of other things. It's about art versus commerce, which is a theme you see come back in The Matrix Resurrections. Um, it's about how in a cynical, corrupt world, individual integrity matters. And all of that is awesome. But like Lisa said, the problem is that Emil Hirsch, who is at the center of all this, does not engage with the material for at least most of the movie, if not all of it. I mean, this is not the first movie I've seen where the central hero figure is wooden and is not up to the surroundings that he's in. So I have to give some blame to the directors and the casting there because they had to have known what they had and what limitations there were when they chose this kid. And uh, I am sort of puzzled by that because it's it's not that, oh, well, he's fine in some scenes, but I mean, you're, you're right. Some of the sentimental stuff, he's, he's, he's a sweet kid and he clearly is sincere and has heart and all that. So he, he's not wooden in the sense of being unlikable, but he's not showing any of the motivations that make this character go, go, go. And again, I think that's a that's a problem with some of the hero trope movies is that you cre- you create a character who is, you know, whether it's that he's good looking or he's tall or he's athletic or whatever it is that makes that person the hero archetype. A lot of times acting is left in the dust. And this is absolutely a case of that. Yeah, I, I think part of the problem is they got their chosen one. <sighs> they cast it perfectly when they got Keanu Reeves for The Matrix. Um, and as an actor, Reeves has that quality of stillness and receptiveness where when he and the material are a good match, you get the sense that he's somebody who is thoughtfully responsive and reactive. I mean, I'm not saying genius level, but I'm saying you get the sense that his, that, that his seemingly blank affect is, is coming from a place of, of, of watchfulness and recept and receptivity, right? Um, and it's good for what he did in The Matrix. It's good in some other movies too. But you set up a movie where Speed Racer is essentially just a bundle of fetch- fast twitch nerves and and a steering wheel for a brain. And you have this great scene when he's a kid. And then you get an actor like Hirsch who can't deliver on that for for whatever reason. Um, And I was trying to figure out why his performance is so frustratingly bad, because I remember seeing him in Lords of Dogtown, and he's great in that. Like, he plays plays a, a skateboarder with a really rotten home life and a preternatural talent for skateboarding and an even more preternatural talent for felonies. And he's fantastic. Um, just just describing the arc of his character, and he's so bad here, and I cannot figure out if like he made the decision where he's like, I'm gonna channel my inner Keanu, or like what kind of direction he was getting. But it seems like even it, it seems like either he was cast with with the wrong intentions, or he was given really bad advice on preparing for the role or something. It's just a really bafflingly bad performance and it takes me out of so many scenes because you'll have everybody else you know acting their heart out or or being in whatever movie they're going to be in and we can talk about that in a moment and then he's just kind of 
like everything screeches to a halt the minute it's back on his face. And there's just not that that quality of dynamic velocity that you would need in, in Speed Racer, somebody who should give you the impression that his brain is going 105 miles an hour, even when he's sitting still. Yeah, it's it's kind of what I would call a crouching tiger hidden dragon performance in that it keeps trying to back off and be cool when it should get heated. He's 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 trying to play like 1950s James Dean cool, but that is you're right, that is absolutely not what is needed for the role and I feel like his performance is at its best in those moments when he has to be intense, when he has to be like dealing with a million things at once and especially in the scenes with Matthew Fox. Um, or or Scott Porter, who play his brother pre and after massive facial, surg- sur- facial surgery and faking his own death, as you do. <laughs> yeah. But let's talk about, you mentioned some really fantastic performances, and I would love to know who are your favorite, Lisa and Shelley, who are your favorite performances in this film? So John Goodman, I think, is just he he's delivering on the brief that they gave him and the brief is clearly you need to act like a cartoon character but there have there has to be a plausible emotional undercurrent under it so we we care about your feelings and your reactions in the scenes i think he's great um i i loved every scene he was in i thought it was a delight watching him um I will say that I think Matthew Fox actually did a good job. You typically don't hire him if you want somebody who's going to be like nuance and 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 all that. like that's that's not who that's not why you get Matthew Fox. You get Matthew Fox for the kind of characters where okay, they're flawed on the inside and <laughs> like no one knows him, not even his woman, but he's principled and he he's he's got a path that he's going to walk. Like um it's almost too bad that our Westerns have gotten complex and interesting and, you know, and I'm all for that. Don't get me wrong because Matthew Fox would have been great in spaghetti Westerns. Like, and I, I think the role he plays here plays to his, plays to his looks and it plays to his range as an actor. So those were two really good performances. Um, I adore whatever it is Christina Ricci is doing. <laughs> yeah. She and knows exactly what movie she's in. She and- does. Well, like the thing is with Christina Ricci is, is she's so dang good at like creating a vibe just by the way she holds herself and the way she widens or narrows her eyes and the way she speaks like i don't know if you guys um ever saw the tv show pan am which was on yes. uh, yeah 2011 2012 margot robbie's first foray into the u.s shores um and you know to sidebar for a minute i can remember seeing margot robbie in the first scene and going holy crap she's too beautiful for network television she's going to be in movies and um i'm glad it's proven right but Anyway, Pan Am, like, is it a show about two sisters who are stewardesses? Possibly. Is it a show about a French stewardess who um, has an adulterous affair and then gets over it and is just unlucky in love? Possibly. Or is it a fantastically campy feminist rebuttal to Mad Men at the height of some pretty regressive TV stuff played with a wink and a nod and over-the-top energy by Christina Ricci? Like, she was in a completely separate show than everybody else, and her energy was just, like, way way up on a different level and she brought that here too it was so much fun watching her 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 costuming is so interesting because in all it seems like in alternating scenes she's either dressed as the girl next door or straight up fetish pinup and she's (laughs) playing the same performance in both outfits and so there's this real interesting tonal whiplash that goes on in your brain yeah I do think there are um, a couple people who are like, so I also should say I love Roger Allen as Royalton. 
Um, I thought he was fantastic because he he plays this oleaginous, scenery-chewing mogul who clearly talks out of both sides of his mouth and is ultimately only after power. And it's a, a it's a delightful performance. I adored it. I, I every time he's on the screen, I was like, oh, he's so terrible. Um, that said, I don't know why you cast Hiroyuki Sonata if you're not going to like have him in many many more scenes. Um, he played he played a character that you basically just like see nodding in a couple scenes. Um, he does get to sign a contract, Lisa. Oh my god, but he's so good. <laughs> like, why do you have him if you're not going to use him? Um, I feel like the Wachowskis are maybe not necessarily actors, directors. There are many yeah. good performances in the yeah, things think? that they have made, but <laughs> yeah, I don't know if I mean... they really sweat the acting so much as everything around it. No, but they both they they lucked out. Or they were smart about, I agree with, with with all of the performances that Lisa talked about. And I want to say a couple extra things about that. Because I think Christina Ricci, I, I like the way you put it, Nathan. She knows what movie she's in. Her facial expressions mm-hmm. are amazing. And I feel like that part has so many limitations. At the beginning, I'm so hopeful for the part because she's flying helicopters, for God's sake. And it's great. But they don't do as much with her as I would like them to. But whenever she's no. on screen, she gives such good face. And I love it. Mm-hmm. And Roger Allen is, I think the thing that Roger Allen and John Goodman both do, well, first of all, I think those parts are both really well written, especially when John Goodman comes to his son and says, I was wrong and I'm going to be a better dad from now on. And I think both the way that character is written and the way Roger Allen's villain is written just really not only play to the strengths of the actors, but the actors, I think, know that they have good good parts and they're able to modulate the way they do. They have both have long monologues at various points in the movie and they both do really good jobs of in this action, in this crazy action movie with acid trips all over. <laughs> there, there's actually I, I wouldn't say that the whole movie is written overall well, but I would say that some characters, Goodman and Allen being the best examples, are are written quite well and i enjoyed listening to them because both of them are such gifted vocal actors yeah alum has that great line they they build a a lifetime's worth of loneliness into his single line about how you know i started my company working on a commodore 64 in the basement of my foster parents home and that is the only dollop of humanization that this otherwise cartoon villain gets and it is enough because in that one sentence you get every force that shaped him into the sad, hollow shell of a man that he is today. Oh, but he's so stylish. That's like the, it's almost a metaphor for the movie because this meta, this, this movie oozes style mm-hmm. in every frame. I also really love the way that when Alum is, is he turns from obsequious salesman to supervillain on a dime and just executes it, you know, 10 out of 10. So mm. good. So good. I also wanted to praise Susan Sarandon. Um, yes, who I agree. Who has a somewhat thankless part, but brings so much warmth to it. And you know, she's not in the movie a lot, but the movie I feel does something very interesting. It pays attention to her invisible and emotional labor. And it says, this is important. This has value. Um, for example, when when Roger Allen shows up at the Racer family home, yes, folks, they are named the Racer. The kid is yes. literally named Speed Racer. They have a mechanic. His name is Sparky. He has a quote in, in capital letters, definite vibe um, that I thought was just the Wachowskis being the Wachowskis. But then I saw the first episode of the cartoon series and nope, faithful to the original series. Um, 
But when Roger Allen shows up to the racer home, he not only notices that Mrs. Racer's pancakes are delicious, but he says, these have economic value. I would like to buy them from you. And <laughs> later on, when they're doing the montage where they are all, you know, the whole family's pitching in to build speed a car to race the clim big climactic race, mm -hmm. you not only see her with a welding torch putting some stuff together, but they take they make a point of showing you her making peanut butter and jelly sandwiches to assemble and bring to everyone else. And that is depicted and given the same weight as everything else that everyone else is doing, which I thought was really interesting and weirdly kind of respectful. Yeah. I want to talk, I want to say a couple things about that family that just cracked me up. First of all, <laughs> you, you, you say earlier, Nathan, that, that uh, speed is a misfit who's allowed to flourish. Well, that whole family, they actually support him from day one. So if he's a misfit, he's not a misfit in terms of his family. That family is absolutely together. You had Rex yes. Racer, then Speed, and then the little kid, who, by the way, I guess each of those children are 10 years apart. So I'm not sure what was up with the Racer relationship, but they just said <laughs> every once in a while we're going to have a kid, but not too closely spaced together. <laughs> it takes that long to forget how much of a grind the newborn is. I guess so. <laughs> we should also mention that the racer family includes a chimpanzee here played by a pair of bonobos because chimpanzees yeah. would tear your face off. Yeah. I'm sorry. Um, I hated the chimp. I didn't want to see. I, I, I wanted him to be lost at yeah, sea or something. I couldn't deeply, stand him. Deeply uncomfortable except for the one scene where the little kid who is surprisingly not terrible. Again, another like of those actors kid. who knows yeah. what movie he's in. But Spritel, the little kid, is wearing monkey pajamas, and the monkey, Chim Chim, is wearing little boy pajamas. Yes, yes. <laughs> I, loved I, I loved that. No, the, the, the Thomas Frank pajamas, yeah. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Um, so one of the things I wanted to ask you all about, because uh, it felt to me like a really interesting experiment in some ways, and I'm still undecided on whether or not it actually worked. But there are there's more than one sequence. And I'm thinking of um, both the racer sequences, which remind me of nothing so much as Mario Kart and um, the sequence where you see the inside of the corporation and there's racers on treadmills and the labs are doing crazy things where the Wachowskis really seem to lean into a cartoon action vocabulary. And I wanted to ask um, if that had any effect on how you enjoyed the movie. I remember not enjoying it. I remember being weirded out because it was so, it, it doesn't even try to be real and it hits you in the face. And that was apparently intentional. They, by design, they made sure that in many of the shots, every element and every plane of distance in the frame was in perfect focus because they wanted to replicate the unreality of a cartoon. This movie was shot in front of green screens in about 60 days, apparently. And they, at no point do they make it, do they attempt to make any of it look realistic. They want to embrace the cartoon aesthetic. And I that's interesting, but it also, I feel like it creates a subliminal wrongness in your brain. The whole film lives in the uncanny valley because of that. Yeah. Yeah. Shelly, how about you? The, well, the, the racing scenes was where I 
was sort of taken out. And I understand that that in terms of content, that is the most cartoonish part of the movie because crazy things are happening with cars. I, I felt more a video game aesthetic. You said Mario Kart earlier, which you're right about. It felt more of a video game aesthetic than a cartoon aesthetic. And once I sort of allowed my brain to sort of go there and stay there, like, okay, well, you're inside of a video game. And I thought the transitions between the sort of super cartoony elements like the races and then going back to the humans, you would think that would be really jarring. If I described that to you and I said, well, you're inside a video game for like 10, 15 minutes and cars are destroying each other and going around fake turns. And then you're going to have a heart to heart between John Goodman and his son. You'd go, wow, that's whiplash. But those scene transitions did not particularly give me whiplash. I think they were both well done in their own way. Uh, I don't know. I guess because it had that cartoony video game aesthetic, it's hard to know what the rules of the world are. And the answer is there aren't any rules of the world. Cars just can do what cars can do. And he's got (laughs) seven buttons that have, you know, uh, weapons and crampons and just whatever, whatever tool might be needed. And as as an aside, she gives him says there's seven buttons A through G. Is there a legend? How does he remember what each button does? Anyway, uh, <laughs> well, he he memorizes them. I guess he he. I guess it's the savant part of his brain. I guess. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. The the film does sort of set him up as having a learning disability, which is something we don't often see in heroes of films. And they know they don't lean on it heavily, but it is implied, and that is an interesting element of the film for me. Yeah, I think, right, they they don't say it, but but just the way, again, I mean, going back to the beginning when they introduce him as a kid, there is this sort of singleness or aloneness. I won't say loneliness because I don't think he's a lonely kid because he has his family. He has his older brother that he looks up to who's still alive at that point. And he's he's a singular kid and he knows it. And so he's out of time and out of sync with the physical surroundings he's in and certainly with the the schooling experience. Yeah. That's a good point. It's, it's, he's only, he's happily solitary though, if that makes sense. Like he's somebody who just, he's incomplete without a car, if that makes, if, if, if this sounds plausible, like, um, when I was watching this, I found myself thinking of The Matrix a whole lot because The Matrix has the Wachowski siblings exploring um, the, the exploring the question: What makes you human? Um, where does techno? How does technology mediate that? And um, if I feel like in the Speed Racer movie, what you see is that he's most fully himself when he's commuting with technology, and the rest of the time he's just kind of. Um, missing that part of himself and dying to get back to it. Which is um, sort of accentuated yeah. by the cartoony mm-hmm. vibe of the racing yeah. that's going on because he get. I mean, and they say a lot of sort of high flown stuff about what it is to be a racer and racer racing being art, which is part of the camp aspect. I don't think that the movie is really trying to tell you that that is the case, mm-hmm. that driving a race car is an artistic pursuit. But I do think for him it is what brings him life. And the fact that that environment is not, literal and not real uh is is sort of bears out the the point of him being more connected to technology to some sort of metaverse if you will than to a universe where people outside his family live like he he has really good healthy relationships with everybody in his family and with Trixie who becomes his girlfriend so it's not that he's antisocial or unable to communicate with people because he's able to love people and people are able to love him which I like, 
But his... If you're outside his bubble, you might as well not exist, though. Yeah, I think that's true. I think that's true. Which is why, like, there is no point at which he's tempted by the supervillain. The only point at which he would be tempted is if he if his family was going to be hurt. Because, you know, sometimes you'll see the hero who's tempted by all the beautiful things and maybe they bring a woman in to seduce him or they, they give him some uh, temptation that is unable that he's unable to resist and then later on he's going to come out of it. But even though he admires some of the gigaws and trappings of what Royalton has, there's just no point at which you're like, he's going to fall to that temptation because he's he, the character as written, not the actor as his as he plays him, but the character is so centered in what he what he does and who he is that you're like, okay, well, whatever tension there is, it's not going to be because this character is going to submit to temptation willingly. No. Well, for example, even when um, Team Togakon betrays, uses the the racer family, and betrays them, um, it's funny how he seems to roll with it because again, those people are outside his bubble. So mm-hmm. it it's just a thing that happens. It's like weather as far as he's concerned. Um, and uh, Shelly, I appreciate you uh, interpreting the character like that because it makes me like the scenes between Speed and Racer X more since he clearly wants to pull Racer X into the Racer family. Yeah, it's funny because there's a point at which we're like, oh, Racer X is going to be Rex, right? And we think we know something about the movie. We're like, oh, I figured it out. And very soon after that, Speed is Speed figures it out as well and says, you drive like my brother. you got to be him. And Racer X says, no, I'm not. And we find out he is. But, and he and, lied. And, and you're right. Yeah. I wanted more backstory. I wanted, what yeah. happened? What did he, what, why did he make the decisions that he made? What, he, what has he been doing all this time? If there's going to be a sequel, let it be the Racer X movie. If, it's interesting because, you know, the way you describe speed where, I, I think if you put together your grand unified theory of speed and my grand unified theory of speed, which is he's effectively a centaur only with cars and yours, <laughs> and, and yours, which is he is capable of having loving, deeply functional relationships with the people who matter to him and um, around the terms of, of who he is. Um, that's a good and interesting story in its own right, which we kind of didn't see because the movie is just a lot of flashing lights and colors and beautiful and and distracting. But like the racer, the Rex slash racer X story is the story of a guy who left the bubble, um, who like left the bubble, deceived the people in the bubble whom he still loves and, and loved and decided to take on the world and try to change it and did some pretty extreme things and then has to return to the family he willingly left behind and get them involved on some level too. Like, it's... It, you could make a fantastic dyad because these guys just approach life from such dramatically different perspectives where speed... All Speed really cares about is, is is racing. And, you know, he's like, oh, it does suck that things are fixed and things are mostly terrible, but racing, yay. And Racer X is all, I will burn this to the ground and rebuild it because I hate the system. <laughs> the system is making racing bad for me. I'm going to fix it. And it's just, I wanted more of Racer X. I think that's just a much, I think blowing up your life in the service of a cause is a really interesting story. And it they dangled it in front of us and they didn't give it to us. <laughs> I think you could argue that Racer X is a more, to use a word that has gotten a bad rap lately, he's a more woke version of Speed. He gets yeah. the world around him. And Speed is very naive and very 
focused on the single thing that he wants to do, even after, you know, the, the supervillain makes it clear what is at stake. But I think Racer X understands and is able to address the corruption and the rot within the system better than Speed ever could. And he's just, you know, they, they both care about the same thing. They were both racers. And there's the scene where clearly that's being passed on to the younger kid as well, who's always been supportive of his big brothers. But there's the scene where Speed Racer is basically like, you'll understand when you get older. And he's he's flashing back to when Rex left. I would, I would argue that, you know, I mean, I agree with everything. Racer X is awesome. Uh, I love him more and more each time I see this movie. But you can make the case that Racer X is trying to fix the system through destruction by tearing down the corrupt system by, you know, using the machine guns on his car to blow holes in giant tanker trucks that serve as mobile offices for piranha loving gangsters. Um, (laughs) God, I love that sequence so much. So great. (laughs) But um, yeah, guys, guys, we are talking about all this serious stuff. But this is a movie in which Matthew Fox playing a leather clad badass who fights international supercrime with his car makes that car do a flip so that in midair he can punch in the face a barbarian who is also driving a car that has a catapult that shoots beehives but <laughs> well of I would course argue, i mean come on that happens in many movies don't doesn't it <laughs> it's so great <laughs> but i would argue that so so rex racer x is trying to save the world through destruction he destroys his own life and rebuilds it he is trying to destroy the racing league and rebuild it speed does it through creation speed i i bought the part about him being an artist because you can see it what he is doing is this mix of creativity and intuition on the track he is not following strategy he is not you know going by some manual he is driving as an expression of himself making the uh, the, the cars in this movie do kung fu basically and that <laughs> that makes sense because the car is an extension like lisa said of speed and and what speed does in the end how he wins is he gives people a genuine version he gives the world a genuine version of the thing that brought him and his dad joy even though it was fixed the the he and his dad were brought joy by watching what they thought was a real competition between Ben Burns, the amazing Richard Roundtree, all hail, and Stickleton, who is never seen at the 42 Grand Prix. But what Speed does in the end is he gives an authentic version of that, a race that is not predetermined, a race that is not fixed, where it is just down to pure grit, pluck, and creativity on the part of the people involved. So I liked that that dichotomy between the two of them and how it's not in conflict. These two things work together. Speed and Rex are two, you know, they are never butting heads with each other. They're always kind of working in harmony, even though each of them has very different ways of approaching the world. Which makes it far more interesting because you could read it as Re- Speed is a clone of Rex and Spidel is a clone of Speed. And that's that's not the way it's created. I mean, I don't know what the little dude with the chimpanzee is going to grow up to be or whether the annoying. chimpanzee is going to do. He prob- well, well, I, mean, I think the chimpanzee that. has been more annoying than the kid. I think the kid's OK. But uh, <laughs> God, the scene where the chimpanzee the is okay. holding its crotch when it stares at a, a 
a giant display of candy. So unsettling. <laughs> so Sorry, let's see. Lisa, if you've got, uh, Shelley, the, if you've got the classic female triad, triad of maiden mother crone, is there a classic male triad we can apply <laughs> to the Racer Brothers somehow? Um, oh, that's going to take some thought. Spy, I'm not sure. Savant, <laughs> spy, savant, silly? Or Sport, Kimbo, <laughs> awesome dude? I don't know. I don't know. It's 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 interesting that, that, that maybe it's that 10-year age difference where they're all just so profoundly different from each other. They really are growing up in different families. Um, <laughs> but it's um I just love looking at this movie though. I love the colors so much. I love how stylized the hairdos are. I love how over the top the aesthetic is. It reminds me a little bit of the Hunger Games. <laughs> and um what I what I also really loved about it was there's allusions to a world that is largely dominated by amoral, all-engulfing corporations and civil rights are weirdly uh, up for negotiation. Like they make mention that there's only like six permits to fly through the city at a certain level, which implies that there's some sort of regulation over who gets to travel where. There's that really heavy like um, Eisenhower vibe to the domestic setups and the aesthetics and things like that. So it's it's hard to pin down. It it has a little bit of a suggestion of a dystopia underneath it. And that intrigues me too, because you've got this candy colored dystopia where with, with, with just a firm commitment to like race cars that have rattlesnakes as a feature. <laughs> and, and also Vikings. kind of utopia too, because they it is subtle and it threaded through the film. None of these cars run on gasoline. They are all running on hydrogen fuel cells and or batteries. And it is all threaded through, but but that's kind of how the Wachowskis have their cake and eat it too. They're going to have a movie that's all about racing, but be like, no, 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 but this isn't destroying the planet. So Nathan, what was it like to see this in the theater? Because I remember thinking as I watched it that I, I might actually be somewhat overwhelmed if I was in the theater, especially if I sat too close. So I'm wondering what your experience was like. When I got this movie on DVD, the best $8 I have ever spent on a Blu-ray in my life, um, Mm -hmm. I showed it to a bunch of friends of mine who were completely unsuspecting. And at the end of the film, one of my friends just turned to everyone around us and said, what did I just watch? (laughs) That is how I felt sitting in the theater watching this. So moment one of the film is an incredible kaleidoscope of color. The, Michael Giacchino's wonderful score. Giacchino has a real knack for taking old themes and making them sound fresh and new, and he does it all over the place here. But as Michael Giacchino's wonderful score draws you into the movie, kaleidoscopic patterns of psychedelic color reveal the studio logos. And, and from that moment, I was like, oh man, I was not prepared for this. And a lot of it was like, this is weird and gross, and I don't like how crude and, and false it looks. But at the same time, I also, after, that was only initially, like in the initial scenes. Once the racing kicked in, I was hooked. And this film, you know, we talk about, oh, the pretty colors. And yes, there are colors in this film that I am not sure are technically visible by the human eye. I don't know how <laughs> they did that. It's incredible. But We've all Wachowski- become those, those snapping shrimp that can see 18 colors beyond the spectrum there. Yes, exactly. This this film sudden, somehow manages to replicate that experience, which is remarkable. Um, 
but it also has a remarkable and revolutionary visual language to it. Mm -hmm. This story isn't just pretty. It's told in a way you've never seen before. It has editing that jumps forward and backward in time to give, you know, someone's words in a boardroom the force of prophecy in events that are taking place weeks later but are interposed with each other. It has, instead of montage where you are cutting quickly from one scene to another, it has collage where images overlap in compositions on the same frame of film. I would love to hear you guys thoughts about that because it's just one of the ways in which this movie, they really push the envelope of storytelling for a story that is again about a mopey kid who likes to drive real fast. So my perspective on it is, is, an, is a unique one because I'm, somebody with a visual impairment and I'm sure I missed an awful lot of what was happening in terms especially in terms of colors because part of my visual impairment is that I'm colorblind and and that also tends to make me react negatively toward movies that seem to try too hard visually and where the storytelling is overly complex and seems to be too cute by half but I really felt good about watching this movie. I didn't feel hit on the head. I didn't feel overwhelmed. I was, I was, you know, I got, I get the acid trip part, even with whatever I was missing. I get the sort of uniqueness of the visual storytelling. And I was able to follow the edits that took us forward and back in time and took you from where a character was in reality to what he was thinking about. Was it in the past? Was it in the future? Well, it's not all that hard to figure out because the story is well told. And as you say, it's a very simple story. So it's not like we're trying to play a lot of games. It's it's not... It's not, again, it's not too cute by half. It, it seems to, there's a sincerity about it about that, that follows through not only into just sort of the really simple hero's journey kind of story, but it, but it follows through to the storytelling practice that they use. And even the fact that the movie is really self-aware, it knows exactly what it is. It's a dramatization of a, uh, an anime cartoon from the 60s uh, dressed up in, in beautiful, beautiful clothing that's eye-popping in all sorts of ways. But it, it never loses track of what it is, both in the visual language that it uses and in the, the script and the storytelling techniques it uses. And I just think, like, there are any number of problems with it, and we've talked about a lot of them in terms of the acting and in terms of focusing on maybe the least in, less interesting character. But as a, as a film-going experience, as a thing to watch, I, I just I found it a lot of fun and I found it kind of refreshing, honestly, because I a lot of movies of this era, a lot of movies that try to do what this movie does in terms of action and in terms of using incredible amounts of effects and, and CGI and all of that sort of thing. A lot of those things leave me cold and I, I really enjoyed this experience much more than I expected to. I enjoyed this experience much more than I expected. Is not. <laughs> I cannot imagine what it must be no. like to see this movie when you're colorblind. Um, <laughs> that yeah, I that was blows gonna, my mind. Yeah, I, I mean, I can't tell you. I I I know what I know, and yeah. and it, but but I get that there's a lot of and and this is you know for me it happens in a lot of movies, but I get that there's a lot of information I'm not obtaining, but I also can kind of get what I I understand the concept of what I'm missing, even if I can't describe it. No, that's really interesting because um, color is such a big tool in filmmaking, mm -hmm. and um, the fact that you have somebody is it that you have that you're such an avid film goer. 
Well, I watched a lot of black and white movies. So what do you? Well, I was going to say it actually. It actually speaks to your ability. It actually speaks to your. It, it speaks to your vis, uh, visual lexicon, as it were. Like you know, you're able to. Okay, this tool isn't working. I'm going to put in this one instead. I can still grab what I need to know to really get the film. You learn to <laughs> interpret. I mean, and that's yeah. the thing. Like careful. You watch more carefully in some cases because you're trying to pull as much information out as you can because you know. And I'm fascinated by the idea of visual storytelling as shorthand and color as shorthand, even though I'm not able to interpret it in all cases, but I do my best. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. One thing we haven't mentioned uh, that I'd love to talk about is rain, not the weather phenomenon. The, the, but the actor? Yeah. Yes. Uh, mm-hmm. he He's another guy. This was apparently his very first movie role. He was a South Korean pop star. Um, but he, again, I feel like he knows exactly what movie he's in, and he brings this great swagger to the role. He is required at one point to help save the day through Bugs Bunny-style cross-dressing. And he, <laughs> he, he, looks, he looks great in that skirt, you guys. Um, but yeah, I, I, I really enjoyed, he doesn't have a very big part in the movie and his part kind of gets, he shows up just long enough to further the plot and then kind of disappears for most of the rest of the film. But I I was wondering if you guys had any thoughts about how, you know, how he worked in the film. He had a role to play. He did fine. He was fun to watch. Um, you kind of expected the heel turn, but you know, again, I must express my deep disappointment that we got Speed Racer and... We, we had the fantastic Hir- Hiroyuki Sonata cast, and um, he was not instead in all those scenes. <laughs> that is true. Um, that is no, true. But so the Wachowskis who, um, and you know, here I am uh, talking and trying to frantically Google this. The Wachowskis have always had a fantastic casting department because they always unearth people who are just fun to look at and not in like a conventional, um, oh, their face was created by an algorithm and they look like every other starlet or every other, you know, up and comer um, type of way. And I think Rain's casting was really great for that, too, because, you you know, you you find yourself just looking at him um, that, that just... The way the guy, the guy knows how to work a camera. <laughs> yeah, and, I would have, yeah. I would have rather have seen him be Speed Racer. Honestly, I think he yeah. might have done a better job. He's got that that heat, that intensity to him, mm-hmm. and I would have rather seen him than Emil Hirsch. Oh yeah, and um, you know, uh, uh, shout out to Nan Yu who plays his sister there too because she wonderful. makes she it's makes great. the most of her yeah. few scenes. Like she 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 gives entire monologues just with 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 the shift of an expression on on a dais. Um, it, I like that the Wachowskis. Well, actually, this is I'm not sure if I like it for you know. Oh, this is this is clearly them acknowledging that there's a whole world of racing and it's not just a one country sport. Or if there's something more. Um, something worth addressing in terms of like cultural appropriation, or whatever. But I found it really interesting that the Wachowskis were so self-consciously cosmopolitan with all of the different racing teams, because you do have the team Togacon, and then you had 
um, again, a team filled with people who handle snakes, and you had a team of Vikings. And <laughs> you had the, the 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 military team sponsored by Colonel Colin Laxative. Uh, yeah, first in, yeah. first out uh, is the slogan. If you if you watch the special features on the DVD, and these these are mm-hmm. subliminal jokes that you can barely register in the movie. But yes, yeah. The, the Flying Foxes, the team of, of lady racers all in pink with gear shifts that look both like swords and like something that is not a sword. <laughs> yeah, no, it was it's the Flying Foxes were almost Tarantino-esque. Like the whole setup felt like a inside joke either for or about Quentin Tarantino. I couldn't figure out which. Um, <laughs> I like that they had all the different announcers. If you ask, oh, what do you think about rain? I think the problem with having rain in your movie, if there is a problem, is like you say, it points out Emil Hirsch's uh, shortcomings in this role. And um, it will bug me until I have forgotten my own name and I'm sitting in a retirement home somewhere. I cannot figure out why his performance is what it is. Um, like, who made the choices or, or who told him to make those choices? Because <laughs> cause, cause I find it, that's that's the vexing heart of the film for me, is it's a film where I'm interested in literally everybody else except the, the, except the, the person who's, whose journey we're supposed to be invested in. Like, I love the visual vocabulary uh, because I, I, think, I think the reason I liked it the first time I saw it, and I liked it this time, is I haven't seen anything else that looks like it. Yes, this is this is like nothing you've ever seen. They were given a dump truck full of money and they put every single penny on the screen. And and I like it. We haven't seen anything like it since. Um, the closest I can approximate with in terms of visual excitement and um, the clever use of kinetic k- kinetic staging of, of action sequences is um, the uh, Spider Man into the Spider Verse. Yes, I, that is a that great comparison. That makes sense. Yeah, I, I get that. Mm-hmm. Because the racing scenes are extraordinary, even if they, they, they don't look real. They have a very video game aesthetic, but they are thrilling and propulsive, and you are always, appropriately enough, you get an incredible sense of speed and velocity, and they are cut at a speed that is almost subliminal, and yet you can still more or less follow what's going on. You can follow it emotionally and subconsciously, even if you could not literally say, well, first the car went here and then it went there. Yeah, it doesn't feel like a race where you're watching, oh, well, he's ahead and now this other guy's ahead and they've switched places. You're not really following who's winning at any given moment. I mean, obviously, there's a lot of colliding and a lot of, of things going on in the race other than people just driving. But you're, it's a very visceral sort of experience, whether you're from the point of view of Speed Racer or whether you're watching other cars go by. It's less important how it comes out than what's happening at any given moment. It's, it's, it's about the um, emotional journey of watching the race as opposed to the actual experience of the race. They want you to feel what people feel when they're invested in the race, not be invested in the race yourself, if that makes yes, sense. Yes, exactly. And they push the abstraction in interesting ways. There's a sequence where they are going through ice caves and their, their taillights leave these expressionistic smears across the screen. Uh, there's one point in the final race where speed is going so fast that it looks like he is making the, the ads and logos on the track dissolve. There's that great um, sequence in the final race where there are ads on the side of the track and they're like an Edward Moybridge uh, illustration of the a horse running. And as the characters move and you move with them, the the frames of, of the, the horse, it's a zebra, I think, running on the side of the track blur together and become animation. Uh, I really love seeing that. Um, and 
when speed wins the race, um, I don't know how else to put this. Um, so most movies reach a climax. This film seems to do it literally. Concentrates into a single singularity of color and then explodes. I don't know how else to put it. It is extraordinary. It makes the end of 2001 A Space Odyssey look like a black and white silent film. You know what I was about to say, Nathan, is one of the things that I thought was interesting about this film was how stripped of sex it was. And <laughs> you're making me rethink that hypothesis now. Well, they, they, it's, they acknowledge the existence of sex. Yeah, they do, but, actually. But I mean, sex is, is, a give, is a given, but mm. it is not a distraction. And and you could take that negatively. I mean, you could say, well, maybe there ought to be more sex. But mm. but. The the two characters, Speed and his girlfriend, Speed and Trixie have sex. They yeah. are not chased and it's done as it's it's done as a matter of fact thing. It's not I, I guess maybe the best way there's no explicit male gaze and no explicit female gaze, if that makes sense. Like you're not encouraged Well that's a relief see- for me, frankly. Oh god, yeah. I mean- I, you're not but you're not encouraged to to be invested in the relationships, which um there's just a distinct absence of um romantic shenanigans or erotic tension or even a oh well speeds head be turned by another lady now that he's rich and famous type of thing. There's like none of that. And um it so it retains kind of that oh this is a cartoon for the kids vibe and i really liked that decision because they could have gone like in a whole different direction where it's like speed racer after dark right (laughs) and i also see that as economy of storytelling because they meet as children they like each other and the next thing you know they're a couple together and again they're a couple that's sleeping together they're not a couple that will they get married at some point once i've won the big race they're a couple. She's essentially a part of the family, and her name is going to be Trixie Racer if she takes his name. Just think <laughs> about that. But, I mean, you can read something into the scene where they are in his car at, quote-unquote, inspiration point. She is wearing what the camera never bothers to show you until a later wide shot is basically like a red mini dress that is also somehow a romper. Um, <laughs> and, <laughs> yeah. And the only way she can get his attention and, like, fire up his engine so to speak is to talk about things in terms of racing and i think that had to be deliberate and you are right there is no male or female gaze in this well there might be some female gaze when matthew uh fox is is wearing black trunks and very little else but there's definitely a wachowski gaze because there is that one shot of trixie flying her helicopter and the camera is pointed right up her knee-high leather boot it's <laughs> just like yes lana yeah. lily we know what you're interested in oh, we're okay no, with it I, I would argue that the the that the martial arts sequence was i was like you may be in a wachowski film if that was my moment there um where i was like they just can't help themselves <laughs> well i do love in the alpine fight scene when they are all battling the gangsters in the alpine valley and it's snowing they use the snowflakes to become speed lines it's subtle, but if you go back and watch, uh, as they are fighting, the snowflakes move with their hands and their feet to trace arcs like you would see in a comic book. It's really cleverly done and very subtle. They do a lot of invisible things in this movie. It wasn't until years after I saw it that I realized that they used Apple's QuickTime VR software to stitch together um, high-resolution panoramas of unreal places that they then used in the special effects. Um there's just there's all kinds of clever technology they built in the, they built every track in the movie inside a computer and created a video game where the actors could drive on the tracks in cars that were on gimbals so when they were turning the wheel the car was moving the right way and they were seeing the track in front of them 
there's a ton of clever stuff inside this movie. And then there's also weird moments where like you can tell they're sitting in the edit bay with a stopwatch going, okay, we have indulged the children in the audience with our talk of international racing shenanigans long enough. Quick, let's cut to the kid and the monkey eating candy. And then, oh, the, the adults are going to get up and walk out if we don't cut back to the racing discussion now. <laughs> Uh, I, I think this movie would have been fine with 100% less shim shim. Yeah. Oh, God, yes. 100% yes. agree. Mm-hmm. I was really dreading uh, the conversation because I was hoping that you guys weren't chimp fans in this case. I was just like, oh, please, God, no. don't make me argue with you about the chimpanzee. <laughs> the chimp is so upsetting on every level in every scene. I'm generally not a fan of child actors, um, although this one was... was <laughs> He delivered. Um, he did not make me, you know, shout someday the technology. Um, <laughs> but um, <laughs> I feel like the problem with having a chimpanzee, or in this case, a bonobo playing a chimpanzee, um, for all the the pedantic primate fans in the audience, um, it points to or it harks back to an era in entertainment where animals were basically considered as amusing machines that could be trained and deployed for entertainment. And it was a little bit disappointing to see that now that we know so much more about like the emotional lives of animals. And um, honestly, I feel like there should be a question of consent. (laughs) And if an animal cannot consent to work, then don't put it in a film. So so, you know, it was just troubling on a number of levels. And I feel like you could have had an equally faithful adaptation without the dang monkey. Um, you know, it would have been more fun, actually, if you had this kid who had an imaginary friend that only he could see. And there were eye popping special effects so that you got a look through his eyes at the imaginary monkey that he had friends with. And everyone else was like, yep, that's our youngest. He thinks his he thinks that the blank air next to his ear is a monkey we just go with it you know like that would have been fine <laughs> so i assume the monkey was part of the cartoon yes yes okay because otherwise it makes even less sense mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah you, you, I, I thought for a while that until this most recent viewing i thought you could leave spritel the little kid out of it too but it is kind of clever how they use him to reinforce that this is a generational story that, that there are parallels between what happened with Speed and Rex and what happens with Spritel and Speed. Um, I, I did like that aspect of it. Um, but yeah, the, the monkey. Oh, I well, like it gives Lisa's Speed idea somebody to play off of too, even even when it's not just generational. Because I, I always say about storytelling that a character needs somebody to talk to. And if Speed is potentially doing something at odds with what his parents want to do. The only other person he could talk to is, is Trixie and having yes, this little more Trixie, please. No, I'm, I'm fine with that. I'm, but, yeah. but I, but I also think who does Sprintle talk to you then <laughs> he talks to his imaginary friend yeah. and you know that, Oh my God, I, I, I really feel I, here I am flying the flag for but when you remake this movie, give us more racer X, give us an imaginary monkey instead of a real one, <laughs> make it a fantastical special effects monkey. So no animals are used in the filming of the, of the, of the, of the, of the it, it's, that's just going to be a really good list of uh, requests to, to the directors that wait. Okay. So n- imaginary monkey and more racer X. Okay. Got it. Got it. What are the Wachowski's doing? And How more do Trixie, Matrix four do? Are they up to matrix five now or, or do they have time for speed racer two? Um, well, apparently this movie didn't do well when it came out and is, oh, is no. better thought of now than when it did, which is probably one reason you haven't seen much imitation of it. Although that doesn't make sense in the sense that the filmmaking is is clever and kind of transcends whatever limitations 
people might have felt about the movie. There are plenty of terrible movies where directors go, oh, but that's an idea I can use in future. I feel like we're in a weird space, a weird inflection point in filmmaking. Um, Because, Shelley, you've inadvertently touched on something um, with, with we haven't seen a lot of this. The Marvelverse had not really dominated so thoroughly. Like when Speed Racer came out, this was just um, the MCU was just getting started. And, you know, in, in the intervening years, um, and, and I say this as somebody who, who loves Marvel movies and, and the TV shows and is fascinated by the MCU from both like a business perspective and a narrative perspective, but there's a certain aesthetic homogeneity. Um, there's a formula. And that's, I think that's strongly discouraged experimentation in some ways. Like, you know, since filmmaking is fundamentally a business about managing risks, um, and uh, putting some commerce in that art, <laughs> you have the MCU, which is a proven money machine. And then it's kind of hard to say, oh, I really loved when I saw this in Speed Racer. And they're like, oh, remind us again how Speed, Race- how Speed Racer did at the box office. What is the Speed Racer IP? Did we have Speed Racer spinoffs? Do we have a Speed Racer verse? And, and people are like, no, they just had a really neat, crazy, gravity defying racetrack. And they're like, I thought so. <laughs> <laughs> And it's a shame because we do get things like, um, you know, Spider-Man into the Spider-Verse, which is the closest we've come. And and so we're at this point where you have the MCU that is is kind of, you know, kind of holding the film industry. Or I should say some genres of the film industry is kind of holding it in a sort of an aesthetic death grip. And on the other hand, we have a, at least two or three generations of moviegoers at this point who are more habituated to video game aesthetic. And um, the mystery to me is is why we're not seeing more of Wachowski and video game and stuff either in the MC or outside it at this point. But, you know, I, I wish we I wish we would see more Speed Racer-esque things. I wish this visual vocabulary that we saw could um, could become standard and mainstream the same way like the Matrix bullet dodging thing became standard and mainstream within a couple of years. I mean, I don't know that I feel that way in the sense that when movies imitate one another, they usually make poor carbon copies. I mean, there are certainly directors who, and and with what you say about commerce and the MCU and all being uh, absolutely true, there's certainly directors who can surpass what's been done previously, given enough money and time and the right performers and, and such. But I don't know. It would be interesting if some of these techniques were allowed to be used, but the idea that you would have this visual vocabulary dominating film or being a a, a, a universe oh would that sounds horrifying to me. Like I, I don't want the Speed Racer verse. I really don't. I just want one more with Racer X as the star. Well, you've just you've just made me. Um think that there are some movies that this visual vocabulary works for really well, but it's not a versatile vocabulary, if that makes sense. Yes, it does make sense. Yeah. Um, so if you had a Speed Racer verse, it would just be, uh, it would be like chugging a Red Bull and then trying to take the SATs. Um, you know, <laughs> your brain is whirling and your heart is pounding and your eyes are spinning in two different directions at the same time. And, and I think you would lose the, the story parts. I don't think you'd hire... John Goodman and Susan Sarandon and uh, 
Matthew Fox and all those people together again, it'd be like, all right, more action, less story, because we're just going to have speed raids or drive and the conflict will be some thing that doesn't involve warm hearted family relationships. <laughs> the beauty of the Wachowskis for good or ill is that they cannot make cookie cutter films. I think I like this film better because there's nothing else like it. It is a singular personal statement for, for good or bad. Um, it is, is 100% sincere and heartfelt. It has something personal to say, even if that thing is kind of bananas. Um, And yeah, I I think that is the beauty of this film. It is this weird $200 million miracle um, that I don't know if you could ever replicate, and I'm not sure I would ever want to see replicated because I like (laughs) that it just exists as its own completely weird, fearless, letting its freak flag fly kind of thing. See, I feel like all movies should be like I don't I I don't, I don't like verses. I really don't. I just think I just think movies want to be free and singular and oh what what's well, I wrong think, with Shelley, me? Well, actually, you raise a really good point, <laughs> which is that the the beauty of a movie is it's finite. Like the thing yeah. that I love about a movie is that it has a distinct beginning, middle and end, and when it's done right, it's an enveloping experience because everything from the color palette that some of us can see um, <laughs> to the sounds to the soundtrack to the dialogue to the perspective that the camera has like that all comes together to create this really immersive narrative experience and I love when that goes right like and with Speed Racer almost everything goes right except for the parts that I think don't um, and you touch on something which is the problem with a verse is it's not immersive. There's always hooks out to something else. And so there's always that little bit of leakage that takes you out of the experience and has you looking for connections and things like that. And if you're a fan of serial entertainment, you're like, oh, cool, I love this. But it's not the same as, as a movie that you just like sort of sink into and, and, and let take over the story. I'll just agree and leave it at that because, yeah. <laughs> yes. This is a movie you do not need to watch while you are on any kind of mind-altering substance because this movie is the mind-altering substance. But if you do, please substance. let us know how it goes and what happens because I really want to know. Please. Yes, please let us know how long it takes them to peel you off the ceiling. <laughs> tell us tell us what you saw. Tell I was drinking a beer when I watched it, but just the mm-hmm. one, so. <laughs> well, with that, I believe we have waved the checkered flag. I would like to thank both of my wonderful panelists. Lisa, thank you very much for for gracing us with your knowledge and insight. Oh my gosh, you guys, I had the best time talking about this with you. Thank you so much for bringing this up. And Shelly, thank you so much for letting us know what it was like to watch this movie with colors out of space while colorblind. Uh, You're welcome. Thank Thank you for getting me to talk about being colorblind on a podcast about a very colorful movie. That is not something I thought would ever happen. For the incomparable, I am Nathan Alderman, and I'm off to ruminate on the declining quality of today's ninjas. Thank you very much, and good night. <laughs>